do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, folks, welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is Sean Patrick Terrio, and I have with me the CEO and founder of CXO Nexus, Ken Male. Is it Male? Uh, male. Male. Ken Mail, apologize about that. Uh, but Ken, uh, it has been a pleasure getting to know you over the last couple of months, and I'm extremely thrilled to have you on. You've got a, a great story that I'm looking forward to digging into as to how uh, the firm got started and how you've evolved working in and around the industry. But for those who, who don't know you, just real quick, what, what, what is your current role and what are you up to today? Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm founder, uh, co-founder and CEO of CXO Nexus. And what we do is we help corporations and companies get deep visibility into what they're spending with their vendors. So we uh, leverage AI and machine learning to give companies a platform that lets them see real time their spend with vendors. And as you'll learn with uh, kind of our history in, in the technology industry, um, the CIO or IT spend is where we uh, have started, but we're quickly moving into other personas and domains as well. And we're having a lot of success with companies wanting to understand that vendor spend, because as you know, it can be north of 50% of an overall IT budget each year. And uh, it's a, an area that, that does have some grayness to it in terms of what exactly you're spending with the vendors and how many vendors you're using. Definitely. And with, uh, with the stuff that my firm does, both within Microcorp and at Open Spectrum, we're, we're heavily interested in all things that provide visibility into uh, and clarity and transparency into IT spend so that we can actually make accurate decisions that are fact-based <laughs> uh, for for our clients. And this this tool, as all the tools that we've looked at, just popped out as, as the best in the business. So that's in part why I'm talking to you today, Ken, but also in part, I think uh, that our, our listeners are going to enjoy is the evolution of uh, your career over time. So let me let me dig into that. Where where did you grow up? Where did you get um, you know your roots? Uh, sure. So I grew up in the metropolitan New York area. Uh, CXO Nexus is based in New York City, and uh, pretty much have uh, you know been been in the greater New York area since I got out of college. I lived in uh, grew up in Connecticut. Uh, went to school up in Boston, to Boston College, and then and then have been down back in and, and hubbed out of the New York area since the late eighties. Uh, when my first job out of school was with the EMC Corporation. So hey, I'm, EMC. I'm, uh, I, EMC, yeah. So I'm a native New Yorker, you could say. 
And were did you growing up? Did you were you surrounded by technology? Were, did you have family members or, or friends that were geeks in, in any capacity, or how did you how did you get into tech? I, I you know I did. It's funny you should ask that. Um, I, I had an uncle who was kind of I, I, I when when I think back now was kind of a pioneer uh, with using technology back in the 1970s, and uh, he um, he helped companies like you know big corporations kind of get involved in you know data processing, how to use automation, how to use computers. So he was actually a, a really good influence on me, and uh, kind of got me kind of following computers and, and technology back when I was in junior high school. Um, so that's kind of how my, my first foray into it. But it really was in earnest for me when I was at Boston College, you know, being up in the in Boston, uh, EMC, you know, was headquartered not too far from Boston College. And there was a strong pipeline of Boston College students over that worked that, that graduated and went to work for EMC. There was a, a pipeline between the Egan family, which is, you know, one of the founders of EMC and Boston College. So what I was able to do my senior year was I interned. I was an intern at, uh, at EMC. I took my classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and three days a week I went to, back then EMC was headquartered in Natick, Massachusetts. It was before they moved to the, to the Hopkinton headquarters. And I was a, a marketing intern for, for um, you know, the three days a week. And that really got my eyes open on what was happening with you know, technology and kind of getting inside you know, a, a technology company that was really on the rise you know, when I joined EMC back in, in 86 as an intern. John, and then your, your career went beyond EMC. How, what, what got you into 451 Research, which is, I know, where you spent a lot of time uh, kind of wetting, wetting your palate and, and your chops? Yeah, so my arc after EMC was, you know, I got a great understanding of the, uh, of the, you know, the technology industry, working with large enterprises. I, I came back down to the New York area and, and, and handled a, or I was, I was in sales. I handled a, you know, a region in the, in the greater New York area. But I think the, uh, you know, the research you mentioned, 451, um, I got into research after EMC when I went to work for Gardner. So that was a, a real eye-opener for me to not be working for a vendor, but to be on the other side and be work for a, a, you know, a research firm, an analyst firm, an advisory firm that was helping corporations with their technology decisions. So that really was, I really liked that. I liked being kind of on the quote-unquote other side of the table, you know, helping enterprises with their decision-making, giving them you know, research and access to analysts that could help them with their thought processes and making decisions and kind of thinking through and evaluating technology strategies and ultimately the vendors to use. So that was really, for me, a great learning experience. And I've pretty much stayed in research, benchmarking data, you know, since my time at Gartner in the early 90s. And then ultimately, I got to 451 because a company I started uh, called the InfoPro with actually the help of Gideon Gartner, who was the founder of Gartner. He helped me launch the InfoPro in 2002. We were acquired by 451 in 2011. So that's how I got uh, involved with uh, 451 and their whole you know business with, with research and with companies like Uptime Institute, properties that they also bought in addition to my company. And I also see that you, you actually spent a couple of years working for one of the, the companies that I admire or have admired the most as I've met people who, who worked at it and read about it, uh, the Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC. What was, yeah. that, let's say, an epic, epic organization. And for anyone who doesn't know or the history of DEC, DEC Digital Equipment Corporation, I would look into it. Uh, there's a handful of documentaries that have come out uh, over the years about it that have just been, you know, it was just a transformative for me as a, as a young executive, just seeing how a company could be run um, and unfortunately, you know, both the, the rise and fall of DEC after they went public, 
What what was your experience working there? Deck was great because Deck was my second job out of college. I was EMC where I was very focused. Back in back when I was at EMC in the eighties, it was basically a memory company. We would sell main memory upgrades and add-ons to IBM systems, Deck Quist, you know, Deck Systems, Digital Equipment Corporation, Wang, HP, Prime. Those were kind of our core businesses. So it was very specific to working with you know the the data center teams and the you know, the systems people that needed to add memory. And ultimately, when I was there, we were also getting into selling disk subsystems, which obviously put EMC, you know, made them such a huge behemoth with, uh, you know, with that business. But when I went to work for DEC after EMC, it was great because it gave me exposure to everything. It was hardware. It was software. It was, you know, DEC had end user devices. DEC had uh, services. It was obviously very well known for networking. If you look at, you know, to your point about the history of 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 the of the industry, you know, DEC was key with Ethernet and 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 networking devices. So that was a great experience to really give me the full view of kind of the whole uh, IT and the whole kind of computer cycle and what it could do. And I really enjoyed it. And I was working here uh, again in New York, where I've been based pretty much my whole career um, with the fat, with the banks and the financial institutions. So that was really good experience to kind of see the inner workings of how these. You know, companies that were spending so much on technology and rely on technology were really using companies like DEC and IBM, Sun, HP, and others to really you know build out their trading platforms and do their funds transfer and, and all the different things that they they did. So it was a it was a great experience. I have to say, with DEC was was a real learning experience for me too to see you know how the industry changes. So I was at DEC when you started to really see Unix start to come to the fore, and if you think of Wall Street, you know, usually very leading edge with technology adoption. So what we were seeing when I was at DEC was Sun in particular come in with the Sun OS and, and the Sun Unix platform and really making huge changes um, on the trading floors here in New York with the financial institutions. And that was a that was an eye opener. So DEC was not really as prepared for this move to quote unquote open systems and try to combat it with their own flavor of Unix called Ultrix. But ultimately I was able to see, you know, how companies get formidable and big, but have to be aware of what's coming down the pike in the competitive landscape to make sure you can, you know, sustain. So it was a very interesting experience for me to, to see that firsthand. And one one of the key um, pieces of the deck story is how flat their their management structure was, and relative to IBM at the time, which was very hierarchical and, and almost pyramid shaped uh, management structure, and it. Know, the correlation between how the systems that were developed within IBM mirrored the the management system within the organization relative to DEC, which was very linear and flat and everything connecting to everything. Um, did you find that to be the, tr- the the case? Yeah, it was. It was a great point. For a large corporation, it was obviously the number two technology company to to IBM, you know, back in, in its heyday in the in the in the eighties and into the early nineties. It was run very flat, and it was very much an engineering-led organization. So very strong. You know, the, the technology teams really had a lot of influence and and yielded you know a lot of the uh, ultimately a lot of decisions that were made. Which I think was you know obviously we had very strong technology, but there also needs to be a balance with with marketing acumen, right, and the ability to kind of look out in terms of what's out there from a competitive perspective. But you, you're right, very flat. But you know, if, if I look back at it. You know, very engineering and technology led, and I think there needed to be some triangulation with market. Uh, you know, and not that they didn't have that, but they could have probably done more of that to try and really be out in front of competitive uh, landscape and how some of the things were changing. You know, in the uh, 
particularly in the, in the large corporations and what they were looking to spend on and evolve their their infrastructure and their their whole platform. Gotcha. So you've spent a lot of years working for analyst firms, research firms that are focused on on the industry and whatnot. Um, and as you mentioned, you you started your own firm and grew that for a number of years. Did you do you come from a background of entrepreneurs? Like what what was the impetus for you to say? you know, I, I could do this. What, what am I working for other people for? <laughs> yeah, great question. My dad was an entrepreneur. He started his own company. So I kind of grew up with, uh, with that. And my dad was interesting too, because, you know, there's, there was obviously a shift back in, you look at like the late eighties, nineties to that kind of home office, you know, working at home. Uh, it was, it wasn't really that prevalent back in the sixties or seventies. My dad um, was very much a home office guy. He was on the road a lot. So built out a nice home office in our house. So I was able to kind of see him, a lot because he would be home, you know, certain days a week or in the afternoon when he was back from meetings he would have or something. So he was definitely a, a very strong influence. And, you know, I mentioned I was an intern at EMC back when EMC was, 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 they were already public, but they were probably doing maybe 40 million a year. It wasn't a large, you know, company when I joined as an intern and we were in very small offices because it was before they'd moved to their corporate headquarters. So I actually got to know Dick Egan, who was the E and EMC, and Roger Marino, the M and EMC, quite well. Because being an intern, I was I my office was only a couple doors down from from Roger, and 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 then around the corner from Dick. So that was for me as a college, you know, senior to be able to rub elbows with guys that were building a company and seeing what they were doing and and how they did it and how they built teams was I think a big a big influence on me. And then I also got to know Gideon Gartner quite well when I was at Gartner. Uh, I mentioned he helped me launch my company, the InfoPro. So that was a big influence too, to, to be able to get to know Gideon and, and see how he built Gardner and his thought process and how he was very cerebral. He's just such a brilliant guy. And to have his, his influence, I think, helped me too. So I think it's a combination. It certainly starts with my dad and then being fortunate to work with and have exposure and, and collaborate with people like, you know, the Dick Egan's, the Roger Marino's and, and the Gideon Gardner's. That's, that was certainly a huge, huge help for me. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear. I likewise have a, uh, a father who is an entrepreneur. Um, and have an uncle that was and a, a grandfather that was. And it's, uh, I've come to believe that with some few outlier cases, uh, we become that which we've experienced in some way, shape, or form. So whether it's a book that we read or a, a family member or a family friend or, or someone, you have to have some sort of example that will kind of make you ask the question, well, why can't I do that? Or why can't I position things in that way or, or accomplish that? Um, and so it was very formidable for me as well growing up, having to have had relatives uh, and, a, and a father, though, though, to be honest, talking to my father about it and looking back on it, though, it was a great experience for him. It was very stressful times <laughs> for, for the family. Um, I can remember my mom numerous times sitting me and my sister down and saying, well, kids, I think we're going to have to live off a of soup for the next couple of months. Um, and my dad coming in and being like, what are you talking about? We'll be fine. Like, you know, this is, this is just a, you know, don't worry about it. We got, we got options, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but yeah, it's <laughs> the life of an entrepreneur, as I know, you now know, uh, is not the easiest life. Um, but it's one that, uh, I definitely don't regret. I think the, uh, there's a saying that I have in a, in my office that says, uh, the life of an entrepreneur um, is one where we choose to live our life like most people refuse so that we can live the rest of our life like most people can't. Uh, <clears throat> I like that. Yeah, it's been very true for me. I'm a very yeah, I think I was fortunate. I was fortunate, too, to, to 
be with people that really, you know, saw a void in the market, you know, really saw opportunity, you know, as, as entrepreneurs do, but to be able to see, you know, what my dad did with building out a business where he, there was a need for his types of services, um, to see what Dick Egan and Roger Marino did to realize that, hey, why, why get locked into buying your main memory upgrade from IBM and pay an arm and leg for it when you can get it for a lot less? And then ultimately they moved into the disk systems. And what Kitty and Gartner built out by realizing that, hey, companies need advice. They're working kind of in a vacuum. They're not getting, they're just listening to the vendors and not able to talk to an independent third party to help them understand how things are evolving from a technology perspective and the vendors that are performing well or maybe don't have the best product. So just to be able to see kind of progression of people that saw voids in the market and then build something, you know, firsthand to have that, uh, you know, to have to, to, to work with them and, and kind of pick their brain on it. And in case my dad see him do it, I think it was a, you know, a huge influence and gave me kind of a roadmap and a blueprint for how I could try and do something, you know, similar with what I've built out over the years. If you don't mind my asking, was, is your dad still around? No, my dad passed away almost 30 years ago. So yeah, we lost him. We lost him young. He was only 57, but he started his company in the, uh, early 1970s. So he had a, you know, had a good run up until we, uh, we lost him in, in 1989. So what, what are some of the lessons that you, that you learned from, from him and watching, watching him grow that business? I think you mentioned one, just trying to find where the holes are in the market, but are there other lessons that you kind of take with you as a, as a founder and a CEO of a, of a company? Yeah, I think, you know, with, with my dad, he was a master at being able to combine Working hard, he was a very hard worker and, and, and a great networker, and, and really, you know, you know, out building relationships, but but melding that with the with the personal side. Like for him, it was a very seamless. His work life balance almost over, you know, overlapped in a good way. His clients, companies he worked with, companies he 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 partnered with, those principals and those executives became some of his best friends. So you know, growing up, I was able to see him, you know, entertain these people and you know they'd come to our house for cookouts we would go to football games together we're longtime season ticket holders of the new york giants for football and just to kind of see the way he was able to so seamlessly blend the two and, and really enjoyed it i mean these people became some of his his best friends that was really powerful for me to see and i think a big influence because when you see somebody live their life that way that it's not like they're going to an office and working you know for certain hours a week and then coming home for him it really blended really nicely together so that was a you know, that was a very, you know, nice lesson to take and something I don't think I'd do as well as my dad, but I, I do like to do, I like to really, you know, become, um, you know, evolve the relationship beyond just a work relationship or a business relationship with, uh, with clients and companies we partner with. And it's, uh, it's been effective over the years for me, but I think that was a key thing that I saw, you know, from him that really, I think was very rewarding for him too. He enjoyed that. He liked that he was able to, you know, really, it wasn't with everyone, but with a lot of the folks he did significant work with, they became very, you know, good friends and part of his kind of personal repertoire, not just for business. Yeah. Amen. And that's, uh, that's something that thankfully I also, I learned over the years. Um, you know, I, I like to tell people, especially doing what I do today, you know, I, I prefer to do business with the people that I, I like to work with, you know, growing up as I'm sure you experienced early on, right. When you're, when you're just struggling to make a name for yourself and hit quota or whatever it might be, you know, sometimes we're forced to work with individuals that, um, may not be the people that we would go grab a beer with after work, um, and hang out with, but you know, you gotta, you gotta get a deal done and maybe take some abuse from, from a customer or a boss or whatever. Um, because you gotta gotta hit that number, 
Um, but these days for me, you know, I'm, yeah, I kind of left corporate America because I got tired of dealing with that. I got tired of having a bend over and, and, um, you know, let's just say, do, do a lot of things and say a lot of things, play the political game that, you know, would, I'd have to bite my tongue and, and whatnot were, these days, I prefer to work with the people that I want to work with. And I think that's in part, Ken, why you and I are working together. It's great to hear that story because I think I'm totally <laughs> aligned with that with that ethos, right? Um, life is a lot more enjoyable and you get up every day wanting to go to work when you actually work with people who are aligned with your, your same ethos. So, exactly. Um, yeah. So I see also that you spent some time at Aptio, which by some degree might be considered a competitor to what you're, what you're doing now. Um, what was that, what was that experience like? And did it help kind of seed some of the, uh, the ideas that brought CXO Nexus into fruition? It did. And that's a, that's a great kind of segue to kind of where, where we, where we are with CXO Nexus. So I, I had been thinking about CXO Nexus and what we do with that visibility and how we, help companies understand their vendor spend before joining Aptio. When I was thinking of what I wanted to do after my company, the InfoPro, was acquired by 451, um, I had gotten to know our co-founder, Theron Lee, quite well when he was at Charles Schwab, and he was showing me what he was working on, you know, which was a project that he was uh, working on with the CIO and CFO. He reported to the CIO to help get them visibility into what they were spending with their, with their vendors for the IT side. And he was really going about it in a very interesting way to try and understand, you know, looking at the accounts payable data and really, I think, in a very innovative way, um, visually displaying that data. So I, I loved what he was doing. I thought we could we could bring it to market. So I joined Aptio because Aptio was doing something akin to that, but not to the level we were, you know, we're doing today with CXO Nexus with our vendor spend. But what really drew me to Aptio is I got to know the founder um, and CEO, Sunny Gupta, through some mutual clients, companies that were clients of mine with the InfoPro I uh, thought Sonny would be a good guy for me to meet with. And Sonny and I met and we really hit it off. And I, I loved what Aptio was doing because, again, you, you mentioned Digital Equipment Corporation a few minutes ago. I remember when I was at DEC very well, um, one of the key accounts I worked on was J.P. Morgan. And I remember meeting with one of the top um, IT people at the time at, at J.P. Morgan, a gentleman named Peter Miller, who was very well known here in New York and in, in the financial institutions. And I remember him asking us at the DEC team saying, hey, you know what I'd like to get? You know, we're seeing our IT spend and this technology spend keep growing and growing. I think back then, quite honestly, um, they called, uh, they called, um, they didn't call it IT, they called it data processing. I mean, so I'm kind of dating myself, but that was kind of what they, you know, the, the terms they were using back then, and that was the vernacular. He asked if we could get a dashboard. Is there a way we could show what it costs, like what, their, what it costs to deliver service, you know, what their spend is for, with their vendors for labor, and he, he was hoping to get like a very kind of easy to use interface and just a you know, way to display that. And so I always remember that. I remember Peter asking that, and it was not something that you know DEC could provide or anybody for that matter was doing back in the late 80s, early 90s when I was at DEC. And then I meet Sonny, and I'd heard about Aptio, and sure enough, he built it. I mean, that's what Sonny built. That's what Aptio does a really good job of, you know, cost transparency, what it costs to deliver service, your whole combination of labor, you know, vendors, um, you know, facilities, you know, they kind of wrap it all in. So Sonny and I really hit it off and he brought me in to kind of lead their data and benchmarking group. Because if you think of Aptio, there's a lot of data, you know, that they get that could be monetized in, in different ways and be very valuable, the aggregated data from the different clients. And then it's also that data becomes a good benchmarking platform. So 
I went in thinking that some of the things that we're doing today at CXO Nexus could potentially roll up into Aptio, that Aptio could have maybe taken some of the IP I was thinking about and, and then getting into their products, but you know, it didn't work out that way. Aptio was on the path of you know, going public and building out their core products, and what we built out with CXO Nexus is more complementary to that, and I understood that, and that's why you kind of, I, I moved over from there to, to then know that I wanted to do ultimately do CXO Nexus after. But you know, great, great experience, too, to learn you know, firsthand you know, how Aptio goes in, how they ingest data, you know, how they help companies get that transparency into what they're spending and how much it costs to deliver service and, and kind of the whole model that they've built out was very innovative and obviously done very well for them. Makes sense. And I think the evolution of your career leads perfectly into, into what you're doing these days. Um, so walk me through what the heck CXO Nexus is, how you, how you really got that started after uh, leaving Tech Target, um, and what the the mission, vision, and goal goal is for the firm, and maybe a quick comment on how what you're doing now is a little bit different from what Aptio is. Because as to be honest with you, as I've talked to a handful of folks about about the product and the firm and the offering, people are like, oh, well, that's what Aptio does. It's the same thing that Aptio does. And I'm like, well, actually, it's a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd love for you to you know hear it from your mouth. Sure. So you know what we're doing at CXO Nexus, as I mentioned, I had met. Um, Theron Lee, our co-founder and our CTO, back with with the InfoPro, the research company I built and, and ran. You know, I, so Theron and I have known each other for probably about 15 years because uh, Schwab, when Theron was at Schwab, was a, a big uh, a big participant in the InfoPro studies, and we did peer-based research by going out and interviewing Fortune 1000, Global 2000 decision makers, and aggregating the the data. And uh, Theron really liked the data because it was very fun to understand what was happening with the peer group and kind of understand what the trends were in the market because that's what the InfoPro did. We, we got very high, you know, high quality data sets that we were able to really be very predictive with where the market was going, how vendors were performing, where spend was happening. So Theron and the Schwab team were big consumers and Theron showed me, as I mentioned earlier, this initiative he was working on to get that visibility into vendor spend because the mandate had come down and I'd seen this across the board, a lot of the big, you know, all, you know big, small, but, you know, particularly the large, you know, corporations we were working with to uh, to shave their you know reduce budget to reduce spend on what's running to run the business so think of vendor spend as kind of a run the business um, spend and Theron just could not get the visibility you know he as much as he tried it was really hard to identify what how much they were actually spending with vendors and and what the breakout was with with vendor and if you think of it and you know we've talked about this Sean and you know this you know, there's the you know you're buying direct and you buy through resellers huge issue you know, huge problems to be able to get that understanding of, well, how much am I spending with Cisco, as an example, when I buy direct with Cisco, but I also buy Cisco through nine resellers. So this was a conundrum that Darren was dealing with when he was at Schwab, and he showed me what he was trying to do to solve the issue. And it was not just Cisco, it was with a lot of different vendors, you're buying direct and indirect. And he really struggled with it. So he had to throw a lot of bodies on it, a lot of people at it to try and get that visibility so they could understand what they were actually spending with the vendors and where they might be able to consolidate, where they might have overlap and redundancy, and also where they would have leverage to negotiate better. And he was able to do this very manually, throwing a lot of bodies at it, so it was very expensive, and it didn't scale because once you got your point-in-time view, that was it. You then, you know, as you're continuing to buy each month, each quarter, um, you weren't able to, in in an easy way, evolve and and have the the platform be able to give that real-time visibility into spend. So think of where we are now with CXO Nexus, you know, several years later, 
is with AI, machine learning, you know, how we're able to tap in and ingest data from the likes of an SAP Ariba, which is a partner. We're a partner of SAP Ariba. We're part of the SAP business network now. We are able to real-time ingest the data into our engine. We call it our visual fusion engine, and then leverage AI and machine learning, particularly neural networks and uh, natural language processing, to clean, classify, categorize that data, and then give companies the real-time visibility in terms of what they're spending with their vendors and breaking it down by taxonomy. So being able to show what the spend is for, let's say, storage, compute, data center, networking, applications, end-user compute, security. So we're automating a very manual, tedious process that, quite honestly, you know, companies today with their current financial systems can't, you know, can't get access to. And you brought up Aptio. You know, Aptio tries to get at vendor, but not to the level of detail we do. You know, the, the, the way we clean, classify, categorize, the way we help with that reseller issue, you don't see that coming out of what Aptio does. Aptio is really good at doing cost transparency and cost to deliver service and, uh, you know, providing that type of, of a view. But when it comes to vendor, we really pick up where they leave off and give that deep visibility and understanding of vendor spend. So there's a, there's a big difference when you look at the two side by side and what we bring in. But that's kind of the, the view of what we're doing. The other thing that I appreciated about it is it's not just the spend, right? There's other metrics that you're looking at and that um, clients can get visibility into and kind of do heat mapping around. Can you, can you speak to that? Sure. So the visualization is a big piece of what we do. So we call our products the, you know, the CIO heat map, and that is a living, breathing heat map. And because we're bringing the data in real time, we're able to show how spend is changing. So if uh, it's a heat map, so the size of the real estate for the vendor, the size of their square or their rectangle in the heat map is how much the spend, the overall spend goes to them. And then if it's red, green, um, you know, that's red, the spend is trending down, green, the spend is trending up for whatever period of time we have the data for. So if companies give us two or three years of data to start, we can show the trend with that vendor over the, the last, let's say, three years. If we have three years of data, how that spend is changing, what's the makeup of that spend with the vendor, and, uh, and then really importantly, too, breaking it down by the category, because you could be spending with Dell, but we know Dell owns EMC now. Dell obviously has PCs. They have compute. They're in security. They've got VMware. That's taking VMware. So being able to give that breakout of here's your Dell spend, but then here's, bro, here's how you're spending with Dell. Here's how much is going for EMC for storage, Dell for servers, um, RSA for security. You know, that's, we're able to show that clear. Uh, delineation, which companies find very valuable. They will understand not only I spend with the vendor, but where am I spending it and how's that spend changing? So that's a, that's a key visualization is the way we, we do it in the heat maps. And I think you're bringing up some other things that we do too with the data that companies really like is we have the, the vendor spend, uh, but we also can overlay other dimensions about the vendor. So companies are giving us their risk scores you know, their third-party management tools. They do risk analysis of all of their vendors, and we're able to take that data and then overlay that versus what they're spending with the vendor. So it's a nice way to look at, hey, here's vendors that we view to be risk or maybe high risk or medium risk. Let's see how, how much we're spending with them because it's hard to always correlate that. You know, you can see it on a spreadsheet, but when you see it in a heat map, you're able to see a big piece of real estate for vendor X meaning you're spending a lot with them and see that to be red because they're viewed as a risky vendor because they're not passing the risk metrics the companies put in place. That's a great tell. You know, that's a great way for companies to be able to really put more 
uh, emphasis around making sure they're working and spending with vendors that are not risky, you know, that they don't want to put themselves in a tough position. So there's a lot of different ways you can add metadata to the core spend data we collect to give it more usability around things like risk or strategic nature of a vendor. Is it a preferred vendor or not? So we add a lot of different uh, different dimensions. And what's kind of new, Sean, too, since, you know, we've been getting to know each other, we have um, some really, I, I would say, kind of uh, innovative CIOs and, and procurement and, and financial folks that are using our heat map to help with generating revenue for companies. Because what they're doing is they're giving the heat map we create to the business and showing them, hey, here's where we're spending. Here's where a lot of money goes with vendors. Are, are these vendors working with us? Are they clients of, of our firm? Are they, are they a candidate to be using our firm's products or services? So that's been a nice way to see that like, you know, we help a lot of collaboration across the business, but that's a really nice collaboration point when a group like IT can go to the revenue team of a company and show them very cleanly, here's where we're spending, just want to make sure, you know, are they, are we getting commensurate business back from these companies where it's, where it's appropriate? So it's really interesting to see the use cases once we get embedded and companies start really getting us in their workflow. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's interesting to me how few organizations do that, especially larger companies. I know when uh, I was working at QTS back in the day, we were constantly yelling up the food chain within the organization after we had landed about $100 million private equity funding from a company called General Atlantic to figure out mm. who the General Atlantic Rolodex was of, of companies that they had uh, invested in and that they were still maintaining relationships with because we knew that that would be easy pickings, right? You know, a recommendation from the private equity firm that you should all be working together only helps within the ecosystem. And there are some companies that don't want to do that because they fear fear or feel that, you know, that there's, that shouldn't sway any decisions. And there are others who are all about it. I'm, I'm one that would say that that's the lowest hanging, easiest fruit that you should start going after. Yeah, and it's and it's good for the you know the revenue side to understand, you know, depending on how you want to use it, just to understand, hey, okay, this is good to know that of these, you know, of our 15 or 20 largest say, vendors for IT, where are we with them in terms of a relationship? You know, is there, you know are, are, can they be using our services? Can they be using our products? Can they be using what we bring to market? So it's just a very, you know, it's a very valuable tool. And again, one of the things that we've seen on multiple fronts, but is that this visibility, you know, how it's ease of use of what we bring with our CIO heat map, it's a great collaboration tool. So that's another way that you know, IT finance procurement, they collaborate with the tool together, but then they can also collaborate with the other businesses that they support, like the revenue teams to, to show them this. So it's, it becomes a really nice piece that, um, that aligns and, and helps companies, uh, you know, collaborate across the business, which is really good. Because as you know, uh, we've all been in IT for a long time. IT can be viewed as a bit of a black hole, right? Well, how much spend has gone into IT? You know, where, where is it going? You know, we provide that visibility and and turn it into a positive to be able to then you know, use it as a way to help collaborate with the financial folks, the procurement teams, but also the businesses that you support as well. So walk me through, and I don't want to make this all about CXO Nexus and the product, but walk me through real quick what the the engagement cycle looks like, right? So let's say a customer says, yep, I definitely need this vis- visibility, want this visibility. There probably is potential for me to maybe save some money or just have a better picture of exactly who I'm spending money with as a, and what that looks like relative to our own internal risk analysis and, and how our contracts map to that and how our pricing maps to current market realities. Someone's on board says, okay, 
Ken, let's let's rock and roll. This sounds good. What does that look like? Yeah, so we're an overlay, so it's not a heavy lift. You don't have to install software. It's not like you've got to put in an application or you know get a whole you know spin up a whole you know application and do integration you know in in your shop. We're taking data from existing systems. So as I mentioned, we're part of the SAP business network, the SDN. So we have APIs with uh, with SAP with Ariba in particular. Because if you think of the data we're bringing in, it's accounts payable data, it's purchase orders, it's purchase recs. So a lot of the key data we need, the bulk of it comes from an AP, you know, financial system. So what we do is we go in with our integration team, do you know, do do, do some work ahead of the what we call our kickoff to understand some specifics. And you know, it's a pretty straightforward questionnaire that we we go in. A lot of times we know the the data already from getting to know the company, but we want to make sure we have all the specifics we need. We do a kickoff, and then typically, you know, there's a, a point person that um, is kind of a side as the project lead within the company. It doesn't take a huge amount of their time, but they tend to be the point person we work with in the organization. And uh, we find it takes about anywhere from two to four weeks to get up and running. So there's a series of you know sessions we'll do for going over the specific data we need, the ingestion process. Um, you know how we how we want to get it in with the APIs. It's very nice because when it's API driven, we can tap right into let's say Reba or Coupa's got very good APIs that we tap into, and uh, we work on the you know the, the system to to bring that in, and then it's up to our engine and our team to then bring in do the ingestion, uh, the clean classification, and then present it back to the client with the taxonomy that they want to see. So you know, we work with the companies up front to have them identify for us how do they want to see that vendor spend broken out, what's the taxonomy that's best for them. And then that's what we implement for them in the uh, in the engine. So it's some some work up front on doing kind of the taxonomy, getting to know the the the, the how their financial data, you know, the the systems that they use, you know, where the sources are, and then they point them to us either through API or a, a feed, and then our engine does the work to do the clean classification categorization. And then it's a SaaS model, so companies log in you know, username and passwords we give, and then they've got access to the real-time visibility into the venture spend. So with that all on the table and the product, uh, how are you seeing the market evolve given that there is more and more transparency coming into the marketplace, right? So, you know, there's there's got to be some pushback from some of these both hardware, software, you know, vendors at large. You know, I've seen on the data center end where some of the providers are making just egregious, you know, in my humble opinion, egregious margins, primarily because clients don't have that level of visibility into what market current market realities are, market rates are, right? Or people who have just been buying services for so long and never stopped to ask the question, well, why are we still paying the same rates today that we were paying six, seven years ago if the market has been evolving over time and cost has been driving down over time or we have a two, 3% annual escalator in our contract. How, how are you seeing those conversations play out um, with, with your customers? Well, the, the customers like it because now they're in a position of, 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 I would say power, but they're going in with information. They're going in with data, real data to understand, okay, here's how much we're spending with vendor X. Here's what our spend trends been over the past couple of years. Here's how it all looks when we factor in the different subsidiaries that they might own or other companies like I mentioned Dell earlier with uh, you know the different all the different entities now that make up Dell and it's a great leverage point because it gives them that visibility to know that gee we're spending you know we have one company now that just uh, we, we mapped their spend they thought they were spending um, three million a year with a networking company um, when we when we showed them what they were actually spending it was actually more than 2x that because 
they were buying through so many different resellers. So that for them was the aha moment to say, wow, okay, we, we can be doing, we're spending a lot more than we thought. So we should be going back to that vendor and negotiating a better you know, terms of for, for, for future purchases because we're spending more than 2X than we thought with them. And also was a wake up call to not buy that vendor through so many resellers. So they're rethinking their strategy with how they purchase through that vendor. So companies are really seeing very strong use cases to, to, to have an ROI with our product by being able to negotiate better and, and save the money. So we are seeing it come, you know, come to fruition. Also good use cases for consolidation. We had a company that um, realized when, once we mapped their spend that they were paying for and, and had five perimeter security vendors uh, installed. And they realized that, well, gee, we have five. There's a lot of overlap with these products. And a couple of them were a little outdated because, you know, security technologies just continue to leapfrog and, you know, continue to evolve. A couple had been in for, you know, five, seven years, and they were really ready to kind of be, be sunsetted. So this was the catalyst. They were able to go from five down to three, and they're going to now go down to two. So very significant cost savings by being able to consolidate and be more, you know, efficient with the, you know, use, the usage of technology and not having so many um, redundancies. So those are some of the, the use cases we see. And you asked about the vendors. I mean, the vendors aren't necessarily going to be happy with this, but at the end of the day, it is, it is what what's happening. You know, this, you know, companies are now, you know, leveraging things like what we do, AI, machine learning, getting this visibility, leveraging these types of tools to, to give them this, uh, this transparency. And it's, uh, it's very effective. So the vendors are going to have to get used to that and understand that there's a, there's going to be new ways for companies to be, uh, you know, going about how they want to transact and engage with them by going in with data and with, with power. And the other thing we bring to Sean, which we've talked about, is the aggregated data. So all of the aggregated and anonymized data is a great view of what's happening in the market. So, you know, think of, we were talking about Gardner before and kind of my, my days at Gardner, we're talking about research firms. So think of, you know, what, what they do is, is very good, but it tends to be kind of an analyst view, an analyst opinion. And it's very valuable, but now you can triangulate that with actual customer spend data. Like, where are my peers spending? How is spend shifting within a category? What vendors are moving up? What vendors are moving down? Very powerful for organizations to see that aggregated data to help them with vendor selection, help them put shortlists together, and help them assess how well the vendors they're using are performing, you know, in the market. So there's a there's the visibility the companies get into their own spend, which is very valuable. But then you're able to also see the aggregated data, which becomes a really nice source in helping with decision making on on multiple fronts. Are you seeing though providers push back on this type of a tool? I would think that there's some that are probably not thrilled that clients are now gaining this type of visibility uh, into what their spend actually is or should be. No, I, I haven't seen pushback. In in essence, they're what what the providers are interested in seeing is they'd like to see the aggregated data I was just mentioning because in a way it's their report card. It's how well they're faring. You know, how are they doing in the market? How is the spend with them moving up and down compared to the competitive landscape? And how are, are new providers coming in and, and starting to take share? So it's going to be very valuable data for them to understand how they're performing and a good source of competitive intel for them with, you know, understanding kind of what the landscape looks like and what they need to be, uh, be getting ready for. So um, we haven't seen any resistance. I mean, of course, uh, you know, there's been, there's been firms out there over the years that, you know, that help companies negotiate with the vendors. You can bring in third parties. So, you know, the vendors have, have seen this, uh, seen different, uh, you know, obviously variations, uh, but not like what we're doing where it's that real time visibility and to spend and, 
debunking the obfuscation you have of buying direct and indirect and the kind of ability, you know not giving the the uh, companies the ability to really understand what they're actually spending with the vendor this is this is a game changer that they're just going to have to get used to because this is a this is the new landscape yeah the transparency and marketplace dynamic uh, being available online for for people to uh, have access to I think is truly a game changer and transforming the way a lot of business is being done. So let's dig back into a conversation I'd love to have with you just on the fact that you are a seasoned, successful entrepreneur um, on on various levels. How have you seen the process of starting a business for you today, right? Or or two years ago when, when you started the firm is a much, I would assume is a much different process than it was, you know, a decade ago, 15 years ago. Have you seen that as the case or, you know, are, are the dynamics of starting and growing a business now the same as they were 15 years ago? Uh, no, de- definitely different. And, and, you know, we're talking about technology a lot, but just think of, think of technology, you know, back, you know, 12, 15 years ago when I started the InfoPro in 02, so guys okay, got 16, 17 years ago now, um, I had to buy servers, right? I had a, I had to buy infrastructure. We had a small data center, you know, it wasn't huge, but I had to, I had to invest for our database and, and different things that we needed and the tools we used to, to do our survey work and then manipulate the data. Um, now we've got obviously cloud. So huge, huge difference there, you know, to be able to, the proverbial scale up, scale down and have, have that, that power on demand and not have to bring in and, and spend, and, you know, for a startup, that was not insignificant. You know, what we had to spend on the servers and, you know, what our, uh, you know, what our bills were for the utility because it was, a, it was a, it was a small computer room that we had in our office here in, you know, in midtown Manhattan. So, I uh, I was very aware of that watching the bottom line. So now you know it's it's a much different dynamic and and easier you know with with cloud uh, cloud being there and you know it's also just a different way to to market. You know you just see a lot of uh, evolution with like the, the the Martech stack marketing technology stack with what you can be doing online and going to market and and you know building out your brand. So um, you know I, I definitely see you know on the on the back end infrastructure and then you know what we what we see with you know helping us go to market has changed quite a bit and then certainly if i think of where we are today it's not really as an apples to apples with what i did with my old firm but just with with how we've just seen things like the ai and machine learning technologies just the incredible enhancements there to be able to have that you know at our fingertips to to build out our engine that does the work i've been describing i mean you couldn't we couldn't have had, we didn't have anything like that, you know, when I started my, my company a, a bunch of years ago. So it's uh it's a definitely an evolution of a lot of the technology and then the marketing stack as well. Big changes there. And then related as you're going about building a team and hiring for those who are entrepreneurial minded listening in, what are the qualities or the characteristics of, of people that you're looking for these days, having gone through that process of, of hiring numerous times? So certainly people that have had experience, if you can find people that have been in smaller companies or, or in startups because they've been, they've been through it before, that's always helpful. But, you know, having started my career in sales, I've always found it to be good to bring in people uh, that have that DNA, that you know, particularly early on in, in the organization, you know, people that have had that experience with, with marketing with selling because that's that's DNA that that's I think really important, particularly when you're small and wearing a lot of different hats and have to do a lot of different things and you're always meeting people and ex, you know, explaining what you do and the brand. So I think that's always something to to look for, you know, in the hiring. Obviously, for developers and people on the more on the technology side, you don't always you know find people with that 
skill. Some have can do both. They, they're good developers, and they're also good at presenting and going out and talking about what they're, you know, what we've built out. But I think that's, um, you know, that's been important. And I think you've you've seen this, and we talked about this. You just have people that can can multitask, right? There's there's a lot of different things you have to do in startup mode. You know, one like I'm doing an interview now, but uh, you know, earlier today I was working on our website, and I was with. Um, a potential, you know, meeting with a, a, a bank this morning here in New York that, that's looking to become a client of ours. So you just have to be able to transition and wear a lot of different hats and seamlessly kind of go between, you know, things that are pretty detailed and, you know, what we're trying to do is some changes to our website to then being able to go out and, you know, be the marketing person to, uh, you know, to a, a large bank. So it's um, it's being able to, to multitask. So finding people that have that characteristic, I found to always be uh important as well. Yeah. Some, some days after those days of multitasking nonstop throughout the day, I sit back and wonder if my life would be any easier if I could just focus on one thing <laughs> all day, every but then day. You'd be, but, you'd be tired of that. You know, we get, I mean, that would be a little, uh, you know, you get a little of the, I think that would probably be too, too much. You'd want, you like that uh, ability to be able to spread into other, into other things. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, maybe maybe if I could just do the same thing for two or three days in a row, that might be nice. But digging back into to similar line of questioning, what is one of the lessons that you learned as you were going through your career? Like, is there a moment that you recall where you kind of sat back and had an aha moment or a, a tough lesson through your career or even a, an enlightening lesson in your career that helped shape you into who you are? Yeah, again, that's a great question. I, I, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, having been on the on the revenue generating side for a lot of my career, you know, starting in sales. You know, when you run a company, you're you're selling. You know, revenue is critical. I, I ran a sales organization before I started my company, the InfoPro, um, and and I learned this early on in my career, and it's kind of always stayed with me, and I've seen it play out. Is it's it's very much um, you have to be able to have a, a, a scale. You have to have volume. And I came up with this kind of uh, rule and it, it evolved over the years because I wish I had kind of thought about this more early on in my career, but I called it the 4X rule. So if we wanted to you know, work with, uh, get a certain number of clients, a certain you know, revenue number, you always need to be having kind of my, my, and again, there's nothing scientific to this, but have four times that uh, you know, in your, in your pipeline or in your, you know, in your sphere of vision that you think, you know, is viable to get to that number. And I bring this up as an example, because I remember early on in, you know, my days at EMC and, and even when I was at Digital Equipment Corporation and, and Gartner, you know, inevitably you think, okay, there's this really large deal. Wow. This is a huge, this is a game changer. I do this. I hit my quota. This, this deal is going to be like, wow, it's half my quota. This, I, I do this. I'm, I'm going to be above my number. I'm going to hit my club. I'm going to be you know, going to the to the trip to you know the, the the president's club trip, and you know that deal doesn't happen. Things happen, things don't happen. So you put you put all that eggs in that basket, so to speak, and then poof, you don't you don't have it. So I've always been one to extol and, and personally have volume, have that number. And four X was just kind of four times was always just something that to me seemed to be one. And I would always tell my sales teams, you know, my sales reps, if your number is let's say three hundred thousand dollars try and have viable, you know, 1.2 million active to get to that number. So that's just something for me I learned personally, and I've always kept it in my modus operandi in front and center, you know, over the years. That's a great lesson. How about the the flip side of that? Were there any experiences in your life where 
you saw you saw someone do something or perform in such a way where you're like that's that just doesn't resonate that just doesn't make sense um so maybe past you know i could i could think of a handful um where i've had you know a co-founder of a company with with me and and uh, a handful of people who basically behind everyone's backs started negotiating a way for him to exit the business and start a new business under a different name doing the exact same thing and basically screw over all the existing investors and employees. And that was thankfully I learned and saw that happen very very early on in my career and I started to to learn the telltale signs when <laughs> when I was about to get screwed. But I'm curious if you, you've ever had any of those lessons. Over the, over the years. Yeah, I mean, you, you when when you start something and bring in outside investors, you learn a lot. Like I, I did a you know venture capital raise after after quite a while with with my firm, and uh, and then you just you you learn. Like it's not it's not you're not in control as much as you were, and they bring in their people that are quote unquote going to be helpful to you, and it's going to help extend you and like keep you more focused on you know what you're good at and help you kind of offload and you know help you build your team and ultimately you know. You, there are people that don't necessarily uh, have your morals or your kind of way you want to operate your business. So I, I definitely, you know, learned that uh, quite well, you know, with uh, and, and had to correct it. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a, it was a uh, distraction and took our eye off the ball. But, you know, ultimately we had to do it because we opted to, you know, go out and, you know, the way we it happened to be, you know, a lot of VCs were interested, but the one we chose, this was uh, the path we took with them. So definitely have, uh, you know, have seen have seen that and have, and have had those experiences that uh, when you look back, you're like, wow, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, or you know, the proverbial hindsight's twenty twenty. So, have seen that, and I think too, you know, you bring up an interesting point on the on the business front. There's, um, you know, there's the integrity factor, you know, and I've I've seen that just being in research and and you know, for as long as I've been, you know, inherently, you know, you've got very good analysts, but let's face it, there's bias. And, you know, if, if an analyst has a bias for whatever reason towards a vendor, you know, there's, there's been some classic cases of, you know, back when it was not as rigidly controlled, you know, some analyst firms let the analyst own stock in companies and they were, you know, writing flower reports about a company because they were actually personally vested in them and, you know, affecting the share price. I mean, those kind of things, I, you know, they were, that was eye opening, you know, to see that and, and under, you know, that, that people would do it. And then, you know, obviously you need to have the controls in place. And I, I'm, I'm comfortable now that in a lot of cases, controls are in place to prevent that, but I'm sure it's still going on. That was very discouraging to kind of see that. And really, you know, people that you respected and you were out marketing and they were your product, knowing that they were doing that was, was a, a real eye opener for me, you know, early on in my career. Yeah. Those, uh, the people you work with, especially when you've got a small team, whether they're investors or business partners or early employees, I've always preached cause I, I, I'm an investor in about at this point about eight different firms um, and I've advised a handful, but uh, working with a, a team actually here in North Carolina right now, where it's two, two founders and talking them through about how they're, they're married to each other. Now, this is a marriage <laughs> as your mm-hmm. actual legal partner uh, in this business. You two are now married um, and walking them through what that actually means and how, you know, e- even with my, my friends who get married, you know, actually, actually married, married, um, I walk them through that reality. If, if you're not talking through the five-year, 10-year, 15-year vision and, and goals and talking about where what integrity means to you um, and how you might act or react in very specific situations that will likely play out in the future, those things may come back to haunt you. 
you may realize that the person that you're with is not who you thought they were. Um, once money comes to the table, because money changes everything, as I, I know you've probably experienced, um, you know, what people say and do and how they act and react when there's, when there's the hustle and bustle of just trying to prove something can be very different once, you know, you get that round of funding or you start closing those big deals and the company starts making money. So that, that is a lesson I most definitely, thankfully learned relatively early on in my career and, and um, is that you really have to focus on the integrity piece and look at the core of who that person is because uh, that will help you dictate or, or forecast how they will act and react in very specific situations. Yeah, no, exactly. Good, good points. And that, yeah, things, things I've, I've experienced that way that, too, that, uh, that you take with you and, and you build from it, you know, life, life and business is a, is a series of your experiences and what you learned and, 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 and evolution. So you, you try and, uh, eliminate some of those those issues that you've dealt with or, or seen in past experiences as you're moving on to doing the the next thing so yeah it's um it's a, it's a it's an evolutionary process but it's uh it's been a good one and you know, you'll, you'll learn from it and then you, you you apply it the next time around so if you could go back to your younger younger self as you were just starting off in your career at emc is there anything you would have tried to coach yourself or teach yourself at that age yeah i think with uh with EMC, some of the things I talked about earlier, uh, just like, you know, lessons learned, like, like volume, just more, you know, more numbers, you know, just, you know, more, more opportunities. Um, and then, and then also it's, um, it's understanding some of the dynamics of what's going on in the company. You know, EMC was having some issues with quality. You know, we were bringing product to market at the time that was, uh, was defective, you know, that bad NEC disk drives were in the systems as we started moving into selling disk subsystems. So, you know, when you're out in the field and you're like the junior guy, you don't, you don't know, know that, but that's, you know, the, the more, the more homework you could do on product, you know, what's happening with products, um, you know, how they really work, uh, you know, are they, are they industrial class? I mean, that was, that would be something that I, I definitely picked up from EMC that I took with me as I moved on in, uh, in my career. Uh, but that was, uh, Probably, probably one of the biggest things to, to to take from that. And sorry, I'm in New York, as I mentioned earlier, so we might hear some sirens based on our our aware offices. And I think one's going by now. Um, but I'd say that was probably one of the the biggest things to take from those those early days. What is it relative to the industry that that you've been serving for decades at this point? What is something that you think is a common misconception that the market and or or buyers have about the the nature of the industry that you're in? So the nature of IT, where there's well, I would say not just IT, right? So mm -hmm. the the world of of Gartner, the the analyst, got it, right? So four five one Gartner, all the different firms that you've worked with who have focused on bringing intelligence, you know, to the market. Um, mm -hmm. What might be you know a common misconception that you've come across from from people who are outside the industry looking in? I think with with like a, a Gartner model in particular, it's it's follow where the revenue comes from. And you know if you look at Gartner, when I was there, it was eighty twenty eighty percent came from the enterprise, twenty percent came from the vendor. And Gartner is a much bigger company now. Um, but you know if you look at Gartner between their events business and and kind of their their syndicated research, more than fifty percent of their business comes from the vendors. So, you know, that's just something I think, you know, when you're, when you're looking at that you, you, and, and, and them as a source, very smart people. And I, I have a lot of respect. I still know a lot of people at Gardner, but I think that's something that you've got to, got to think about with that, uh, with that um, offering and, and with that strategy is that, well, 
you have to wonder about objectivity. So I think that's, you know, having been inside this business for as long as I've been, I think that's a, uh, you know, that's a key thing you have to look at with, you know, that kind of the, the analyst-based model and, and that kind of research model because they are relying more and more on the vendors for revenue and then ultimately, you know, how you know, does that affect objectivity in the product? And I've been... Um you know, to one of the lessons that I learned from, from my father, which was follow the money. <laughs> you know, he was, he was mm-hmm. working with the exchanges, manager for the broker dealer clearing exchanges and all the financial firms in New York and Chicago and all over the place. And yet he never owned a little stock in any companies other than those that were gifted to him, the employers that he was working for. Because uh, he always taught, taught me that it was basically legal gambling and unless you were the house, you weren't going to win. <laughs> unless you had, mm-hmm. you know, ear in the board meetings of, of what was going on changes and inside these companies you probably weren't going to win the game but he taught me at a very early age you know you got to follow the money just follow the money figure out what the ethos is of the people that have the money that are involved in the transaction or the business or whatever the decision and it'll help you understand how things are going to play out in whatever capacity it might be but to that end if you look at the different you know i don't know if you saw the big short but there's a perfect scene in that in that movie where these these investor guys are sitting down with the analysts who were you know rating the the collateralized debt obligations extremely high even though they were clearly crap and they started asking them very detailed questions and the woman was like well we can't change the rating because we're partially funded by by the rating by the firms that will be detrimentally impacted by us changing the rating and unfortunately i see a lot of that going on with you know some of the magic quadrant stuff going on the Gartner Magic Quadrant and some of these other rating agencies were just follow the money. You look at, to your point, where, where it's coming from. And of course, someone's going to be rated extremely high if they're writing huge checks to to the firm. Um, and I'm not sure how much customers really understand that paradox, um, especially when I have customers who will literally tell me that they will not work with a vendor if they're not rated by Gartner. Um and I kind of scratch my head and I try to push back on that question, but um, I just don't fully understand how and why so many companies have so much weight in those ratings. Yeah. And, and the fact that, you know, you, you know, if you're a vendor, you review the research before it goes out. And I can understand that for some fact checking, but it becomes more than that. I mean, it's just, there's just a lot of progression I've seen since I left. I saw when I was inside you know, Gartner, and then when I helped Gideon Gartner launch Giga, which was the company he did after, you know, Gartner that I was, um, you know, early on in helping him, him develop. But yeah, you just, you just see that. And, uh, and having worked with, you know, the vendors with my data-driven products, like the InfoPro product was all, all data. It was all interviews we did with enterprises I mentioned earlier. So there was no analyst opinion, no spin, no bias, but ultimately the companies that were you know, using our data, uh, on, you know, when the vendors were buying our research, you know, they would they would tell me the stories about, well, gee, we've got Gartner coming in, we're spending for Gartner for this, and we have to, so we show up or we get airtime or exposure. So um, I, it was a good lesson for me to pivot to be very data driven, you know, demand side data, not supply side data, and that's what you know we did with the InfoPro, and that's all we do with CXO Nexus. You know, kind of bring it back to where we are here. This is all you know data where the source is the financial system. So we're at the system of record. We're at the purchase order, purchase rec. You know, we're seeing what's going out to the vendors and we're documenting it with our engine and, and then have have the you know ability to, to show that to the companies and then have the aggregated anonymized data on the back end. So we become 
a very powerful source of the re- a reality check, what's really going on, you know, in the market. Because Gartner and, and IDC, you know, they have uh, their uh, market share, market sizing. But, you know, one of the things, too, like what I've learned, you know, that data comes from the vendors. It's all supply-side data. The vendors fill out either, depending on the market, quarterly or semi-annually, or in some markets it's annual, what their volume of shipments were, you know, what they what they um, – you know what, what they sold, like how many, you know, how many, you know, blade servers that were, you know, x86, whatever, you know, went out, you know, their, their volume, and inherently you're trusting the vendor to give you that data, and we all know that there's going to be potentially some wiggle room there. Is it going to be the actuals of what they shipped, or are they going to maybe give it a little bit of a higher bent because they want to show up better at the chart? So there's a lot of uh, things that I've learned about how those models work, and that really was the driver for me to become. No, let's go right to the source. Let's go to the enterprise. Let's go to, you know, let's get data from them. And then in the case of CXO Nexus, let's go right to their financial system. So let's go, not, let's not do interviews or surveys. Let's just go right to SAP Ariba, Oracle Financial, Workday, Coupa, get the data and give that visibility. So it's a, it's a, it's a big, you know, change from kind of how things have been done traditionally in the market. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a huge point right there that I hope our listeners can, can, Will sink in for our listeners. I had this debate actually, not surprisingly, with some of the online platforms that have been coming out related to selling data center services or network services online via marketplace, you know, platform. You know, you go to the website, you type in what your needs are, it shows you what options you have, shows you, you, know, you can actually procure it all online. There's power and space inside of a data center, you know, connectivity services in or out of a data center or a suite or an office. Uh, and the question that I ask is, well, where are you getting the pricing from? Well, the pricing is the pricing that's being offered from the provider. Okay, so what pricing is that? Is that market pricing or is that the retail pricing that is being offered? Um, and what I've discovered through this whole process is obviously it's the retail pricing that is being offered and presented to the customer through the um, through those portals where in my line of business, I cannot even think of a single time or a customer of mine that I've, I've been working with has paid the initial, you know, through, through the initial quote over the fence pricing. There's always some sort of a discount applied to pricing. And yet that's not reflected. So the convenience factor of leveraging a portal is actually at a premium to that customer uh, by having to go through that process, which I don't think most customers understand or realize. Um, and I'm not sure those, those platforms are incentivized to actually present the customer with what current market pricing is because then it reduces the total contract value of the deal and reduces their, their keep on that deal. Um, and the incentives just aren't aligned, which goes right back to what we're talking about in terms of some of the analyst agencies and whatnot and, and the reporting that they do. You have to look at the incentives involved in the program and who's benefiting and who's paying for it because um, nothing's ever free. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so, anyway, I'm I'm kind of thinking out loud here and running through, uh, and just digesting everything you were saying and seeing how that plays out uh, directly in front of my face, my space. Yeah, and I think so. Yeah, the, so you're asking, you know, what's what what have I learned and, and what to take away from it? I think that's a that's a key one. I think it's it's valuable. They're they're smart people, but you have to understand the source and, like to your point earlier, follow the money. You know, how are they getting paid and what's their you know what do the revenue streams look like in those companies? Because that's a you know, from the the research perspective, it's it's more than fifty percent. You know, comes from the vendor, and you put in the events business, which is all driven by sponsorship. So there's there's a lot of, of vendor driven, you know, revenue in those companies. 
Yep. So data matters. Transparency matters. Um, you know, I, I appreciate you and the tool that you, you've developed, which helps add visibility into that hard data so that clients can make better decisions. I guess the, the last question I have for you um, is who, actually the second to last question I have for you, who, who is the ideal customer um, for something like CXO Nexus? You know, is it, a, is it an SMB? Is it a, a middle enterprise? Is it a large enterprise? And then also, you know, there's certain personality types, I think, that are going to lean towards leveraging a tool like this versus others. Um, so could you talk through who, who that ideal customer might be? Sure. Well, all, all companies have the issue because, as you can imagine, as we were launching the business a few years ago, we went out and worked with uh, some smaller you know, companies. You would call them SMBs just because we wanted to get data in you know, we, where we knew people that could help us kind of work as we're building out the engine. And companies that were spending, let's say, a million or $2 million in technology, they were surprised. They didn't realize what their, their, their breakout was with their vendors. So we, we can help all sizes, but I would have to say, you know, a sweet spot for us is, you know, companies that are spending $50 million or more on, on technology year, 25 to $50 million or more, because there's going to be an ROI with our product, because everybody has this issue with the visibility. They just don't know what they're spending. They have the issues we've been talking about with direct and resell, you know, direct and indirect for resellers. So, um, you know, we, we're, you know, any organization, corporations, you know, um, universities, you know, federal, state, local, you know, governments, non-for-profits, people that are spending on technology, you know, we can, we can help them. And inside the organization, it's, it's interesting. So we kind of, you know, we call ourselves CXO Nexus because we reside at the nexus of the C-suite. So, you know, for our IT product, the CIO heat map, certainly the CIO and then their teams. So his or her, you know, his or her team are, are, are big consumers. So CIOs like to use this as a way to, for them to get the visibility, but also share in a collaboration tool with their internal IT team, but then also collaborate with procurement, with uh, so CPO, CFO, uh, finance is, is, a, is a sweet spot, and then the businesses, as we mentioned earlier. So it's a great way to collaborate with the business units to let them understand where their spend is going, and if you're looking at a new strategy of deploying something differently or changing a, uh, an application architecture, you can highlight the vendor spend that might be going away as a result of that. So we find it to be a good way to collaborate with the BUs as well. So it's a it's a good collaboration platform um, across the organization, but we find that, you know, CIO for the CIO heat map and then the CPO and CFO tend to be the three kind of big, you know, those organizations are the big consumers and users of what we do. Beautiful. And then the last question is how, how can and should people get a, get a hold of you if they want to? So, you know, the best bet is to work with um, myself or um, our, 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 right now our head of business development is a gentleman named Steve Hackenberg, and he's building out a team, you know, underneath him. Uh, so getting a hold of us through our website, you can go through uh, its info at cxonexus.com. If you visit our site, www.cxonexus.com, or me directly, it's uh, my first uh, initial K, mail, M-A-L-E, at cxonexus.com. And uh, my number is 917-861-0693. So either you know, through our website, reaching out to me directly, or, or give me a call. Don, I'm stunned that you just threw out all your personal information on, on, the, uh, <laughs> on the podcast. Hey. But if, if you're cool with it, man, then... Uh, yeah, let's have faith. We, we're, we're transparent. <laughs> have at it. Have at it. Yeah, I am too, for better or worse. That's why uh, my, my email <laughs> message or my phone message is... What it is, I basically say, look, if you're calling to sell me something and I don't already know you, <laughs> uh, there's a reason why I'm not picking up right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
But if I do, so know like you, some of those, like we said, like we've discussed before, right, some of those emails uh, get uh, quite long that you have, right? That you've got to reply to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much. You know, very, very, very last question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Uh, do you? I know we didn't talk too much about data centers, though. All, all the, the context of what we're talking about lives in the data center. Um, mm-hmm. but do you love data centers, Ken? I do. I do. I grew up, you know, grew up with them you know, in college, you know, my EMC days and working. And I remember going and uh, one of the things we did, we, they taught us to do at EMC was to go in to the data centers. And uh, I'll never forget this, you know, I, IBM 4381. It was one of their, their mainframes. We learned how to go to the IBM 4381 console and be able to understand what the makeup of the memory was inside um, that, that 4381, where, where there are one meg or two meg memory cards. I'm, I'm dating myself, but this is, this is what they're literally, you know, IBM would have 16 megs or 32 megs of memory in that 4381. And it was valuable for us to know that because we could swap out the one or two meg or ultimately four meg boards became in vogue. So I love that. I love going into the data centers, talking to the data center teams, and I show my prowess of logging on to the console for the 4381 and identifying the memory. So I do. Yeah, it dates back to me way back to early on in my career, and it stayed with me. <laughs> Good. Glad to hear it. Well, Ken, thank you yeah. again so much, and we'll be talking soon. I'll be putting up the, uh, the show notes that has your, has your information and whatnot once this goes live. Uh, thank you, listeners. Peace. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.